Welcome back to the Career Therapy Podcast, where we explore the intersection of work and well-being. I'm your host, Coach Marty, and each episode I interview mental health experts, coaches, and industry insiders to bring you practical insights and tips that will help you build a meaningful, rewarding, and sustainable career. So join me as we explore the path to career satisfaction, one conversation at a time. Today we sit down with Dr. Brooke Wachler, a licensed psychologist and the founder of BEW Consulting and Training and the newsletter Beyond the Buzzword. Brooke offers companies interactive workshops that teach proven strategies for tackling workplace challenges. She is passionate about helping people change their thought processes, actions, and behaviors to help improve well-being at work. In this episode, we discuss how to deal with your difficult boss or coworker, ways to reframe your mindsets to reduce stress, and how to realistically integrate your work and personal lives in a way that leads to long-term career success. If you like this episode, please leave us a review on iTunes or Spotify and share this episode with a friend so we can help more people navigate their way to a better career. Thanks for tuning in. Now let's get back to our combo with Brooke Wachler. Brooke, thank you so much for joining us today. I'm very excited to get into your background and your work in the corporate environment and helping people manage and navigate challenges and stressful situations. Uh, but before we jump in, just give us a little bit of a background on how you got into corporate wellness and the type of work you're doing. Sure. Thank you so much for having me. A little bit about my background. So my background actually is in school and clinical psychology. I got my doctorate in graduate school in both of those in clinical and school psychology. But my road was not very traditional, as you can see, because I did end up doing corporate work. So what ended up happening was postgraduate school, I was trying to figure out what do I want to do now that I'm all grown up and I'm an adult and I'm actually a psychologist. And what I was noticing is that with my clinical clients, no matter why they originally came to our sessions, whether it was to work on anxiety, depression, relationship issues, we were spending anywhere from 50 to 75% of our sessions talking about work stress. And that's because a lot of people don't realize you can come to therapy and gain those skills that are really helpful in the workplace, stress management, time management, leadership skills. So I was working with my clients and they were doing much better at work. They were managing their stress. They were learning how to integrate work and life more effectively. They were getting promoted. They're becoming leaders. So I started to think to myself, why am I spending so much time doing intervention? What if I could do more prevention? What if I could bring these research-backed skills that I'm teaching in the therapy room into the workplace and really help people with their overall well-being, performance, and productivity? And that's when I came up with the idea to shift my focus and move away from clinical psychology and start doing corporate consulting. I love that. And I think that, you know, you you hit on a phrase that is very uh, core to the podcast, that integration of work and life. And I think that's one of the hardest things for people to do for a number of different reasons. Either one, their work is so demanding that they start to neglect their life. Number two, their life is so demanding that they neglect work, right? There's all sorts of different things that get in the way. So what do you, what have you seen um, as people have been talking to you about their jobs, about their careers, what are the core stressors that they typically come up, come across, or what are maybe the most common themes that come up as people are trying to integrate their work and their life? Something I've noticed with a lot of clients is that they think they have to make this decision between, am I going to focus on work or am I going to focus on my personal life? And how am I going to make those decisions throughout the day? And a lot of this actually comes down to time management. When we enter the workplace, we develop a bunch of strategies that we think are going to help us manage our time and to deal with the challenges of the day. But sometimes we become too rigid. We think, while well, I'm at work, I'm only going to focus on these certain tasks. Then once I turn off my computer, I'm going to only focus on home. But the reality is that's not what, what life is. If you're a parent, you're going to get phone calls during the workday. Something's come up with childcare, your child. As we know, in client-facing industries, clients are going to email you after work hours. So a lot of what you have to figure out is how to create more flexibility during your day and acknowledge that your personal life isn't just going to shut off and neither is your work life and figure out how am I going to get my work done while adding in some of that flexibility so I can figure out that actual integration that's more realistic. 
That's a really good point around flexibility. Cause I do, I see that a lot in the work that I'm doing as well, where, you know, whenever we feel stressed, there's a lot of different responses that we can have, right? Once the, the fight, flight, freeze, all those different things, right? And I'd love to get into that with you. Um, and one of the things that I notice is when people are trying to get control over their situation, right? Maybe they're stressed out with work. Maybe they're stressed out with home. Maybe he's stressed out with both. The typical response or one of the typical responses is to enforce more uh, structure, enforce more discipline, um, really get more rigid about things. I have to leave work at this time or start work at this time or wake up at this time. We tend to set really rigid goals or really rigid um, structures in order for us to hopefully relieve some of that stress. But are you saying that that actually ends up working against us when we start to really put too much pressure on that structural structural format? In some ways, it definitely does. I was recently working with a client, very high performer, very successful. But what he was finding as he moved through his career, those strategies he originally had um, as a more junior person in his company weren't as effective because exactly what you said, it was almost too rigid. What we had to talk about is, yes, creating a schedule, super important, very helpful. Time blocking, also very helpful, but also to be realistic. So if you tell yourself, I'm going to sit down from 9 to 9.30 a.m. and check my emails, well, that's the start of the workday. It's very possible some emergencies are going to come in. So why not be more realistic and say from 9 to 10, I'm going to check my emails, knowing you might get derailed in the middle. Or rather than blocking every hour of the entire day, adding in breaks. One, because we need breaks during the day. That's going to help us to stay refreshed, to stay focused, and also pad your schedule a bit for the unpredictability. So it's creating structure with acknowledging the unpredictability of the day-to-day. -day. I love that. Build your schedule with unpredictability in mind. That's awesome. And so when we do sit down and we start to go, okay, I'm I'm going to start building this. What are some realistic examples that you've come across of what a day could look like for someone? I mean, obviously that's like such a broad question, but mm -hmm. have you have have you had any experiences with individuals who did find some balance and what were some of the ways that they put their schedule together or ways that they shifted their mindset and how they thought about their schedule and their work that has helped them um find a little bit more um integration? between their work and their life. Yeah, so that client that I mentioned, he was not a morning person. It was very hard for him to get up and out at the beginning of the day. And at the end of the day, he worked very long hours, but he really wanted to prioritize seeing his family. So what we talked about with his time blocking was one, you're not a morning person, that's okay, that's good to know. Let's structure your day so that the mentally heavy tasks are not first thing in the morning. Maybe it's you arrive to the office, you knock off certain phone calls that you missed out on the day before. You do some of those busier tasks. And then the middle of the day, we're going to do those more mentally challenging tasks. And then at the end of the day, maybe we're going to have you leave the office a little earlier than you usually would and build in a break. You'll get to see your child. You can have dinner with your family and then get back to work because you're okay working later in the evening. So I was thinking how you know, the workplace, especially now with hybrid work, for a lot of people, doesn't have to be traditional work hours. And that's great. So really thinking about your strengths and weaknesses and how you can maximize your day around what works for you and your work style. And that really is a gray area for people. Um, as you know, we get into this much more hybrid, flexible work schedule kind of a world. I was just looking at the stats yesterday, actually. And I was curious how, you know, what's the percentage of people working remote now versus the past? And the numbers were crazy. It was like something like 14% of uh, workers were remote in 2018. Then that shot up, of course, during the pandemic to like 80%. And then went back down to like 40%. But 40% versus 14 is pretty wild, considering mm -hmm. the fact that, um, you know, if you just rewind the clock, even to 15 years ago when I was in the corporate environment, you know, trying to log in remotely took like an hour and a half and now right. everything is remote. It's pretty wild. Um, so, you know, that's one of those things where I think it, when we're working remote, work tends to bleed, 
right? And and our life tends to bleed and the two things start to get blurry. And there is a real pushback online of like, you know, we, there's all the phrases, all the cliches, like quiet quitting and things like that. But really at the end of the day, it's people just trying to find some sort of balance or control in all of these things, right? Because um, if you don't have any if you don't have any discipline or structure, work can easily take over all of your time. And if yes. you, and then that will overwhelm you and then you'll burn out and then you'll go, okay, well, I can't do work at home or I can't do work past this. And it's that flip-flopping back and forth. Have you seen a lot of uh, sort of like extremes of people being very binary in their thinking or flip-flopping between like working all the time and then now I can't work because I'm burnt out and then going back to overworking and, and back and forth. Have you seen a lot of that flip-flopping? Yes, I have. And a lot of that comes back to what you mentioned earlier, mindset, and how the way we think about challenges in the workplace influences our work style and the way we handle those work challenges. A lot of times there's a belief pattern called frustration intolerance. And the idea is that when we're endorsing these frustration intolerance beliefs, we're telling ourselves that we can't handle, we can't tolerate challenges. So maybe it's that day where you have so much work to get done, but a lot of unpredictability is being thrown your way, rather that's your personal life or emergencies are coming up at work. And the more you tell yourself that you can't handle or take on these challenges, the more you believe it. So the more you become frazzled, the more you become panicked. And that's when we might hold on too rigidly to those strategies or these structures we're saying around the day that might not be even working for us because we're trying to, like you said, gain some control because we just can't tolerate that discomfort of things feeling out of control. Let's dig deeper into that mindset piece because there's there's a lot of interesting stuff that you come across when you start studying mindset. And you know, you have the far extreme of just whatever you think just manifested in your life and everything will mm -hmm. happen perfectly, right? And then you have the other side, which is like, you know, listen to your thoughts and and then people can get really overwhelmed by them. What is maybe a balanced approach to even looking at mindset so that we have realistic um, approaches to it and realistic expectations of how far mindset can go? Like what, what are maybe, I would assume most people think um, are in one of two camps. They either think your mindset is everything and everything comes down to mindset or you know, it really doesn't matter. You just have to be disciplined. Even if you're unhappy, you just keep doing it, something like that. Um, but what are some realistic expectations of how far we can push ourselves or push our mindset to be more growth oriented or be more um, tolerant and uh, take on more challenges? What What are some of the examples that you've seen of people who have been able to stretch their tolerance of pain, let's say, or tolerance of discomfort? by taking some mindful changes. So if you're open to it, I have an icebreaker exercise I like to do with my clients and I cool. think it explains very much my perspective on mindset. So if you're open to it, can we give Let's it a do try? It. I love it. Okay. So what I want you to do is take a second. I want you to think about one of your most embarrassing moments, something that just makes you physically cringe. You won't want anyone to know definitely would not want to talk about it on a podcast. <laughs> Just take a minute. I'm going to do the same. I'm going to think about it. All as right, well. I got one. <laughs> got one. Okay. I have mine too. I've done this before. So I'll have you go first. So I want your listeners to get to know you better. I'm going to get to know you better. We're going to break the ice. I'm going to ask you to share that embarrassing moment. Okay, wait, I'm not actually going to have you do that because <laughs> you'll probably never want me to come back on this podcast again. I was like, oh, we're about and to get I, real. <laughs> and I certainly don't want to share my embarrassing moment. But what I do want to know is when I asked you that in that moment, I was putting you on the spot on your podcast, asking you to share something uncomfortable. What emotion did you feel? <sighs> um. I felt a lot of tension in my body. <laughs> and then mm -hmm. the emotion I felt was um, a little bit of fear of how might this um, change, how might this create a reaction in, in the future or how might this affect me in the future? How might other people perceive me a certain way or um, how might it impact? I don't even know what it would impact, but just... A, a generalized fear of how that might change 
or come back to bite me, let's say. <laughs> mm -hmm. Right. So it sounds like you had fear and the thoughts were a lot about the future. My assumption is that negatively something could happen there. Your mind kind of went to that awfulizing or catastrophizing. This could potentially be horrible that I have to share this and maybe there wouldn't be a, a positive response to it. Is, would you say that's accurate? Yeah, I definitely have a, a tendency to catastrophize. And especially when that experience happened, um, I recall thinking, oh my gosh, like I'm never going to be able to like bounce back from this. And I mean, it was mm -hmm. 15 years ago and obviously it hasn't affected too much, <laughs> but it is funny how that fear is still so visceral and internal. Yes, definitely. Um, so many of us have that, that core belief that we, when we're in a scary situation, we tend to awfulize. My question though, also for you is, let's say there were other people in the room with you. And I also asked them to share their embarrassing moment. Let's say we pick one other person. Do you think they would have the same reaction to you or a different reaction to being asked to share this embarrassing moment? Oh, interesting. I mean, emotionally, I think the same. I think that everyone is experiencing what I'm experiencing, but rationally, I would assume everyone has a different sort of reaction to things, but I'm not sure. Yeah. Because when I've done this icebreaker before, what's so interesting is most of the people in the audience or the clients I'm working with have very different reactions. You know, I have some people who get angry. How dare she ask me to share this in front of my coworkers? That's you know terrible of her to ask me to share this. Um, some people think it's hilarious because they're like, well, I'm just going to lie and I'm going to make up something <laughs> absurd. So I don't really care. So these, these responses right, span the spectrum, all different emotions and all different reactions. And this, what's, this is how I explain my philosophy around mindset, that in the exact same situation, people can have very different emotional reactions and thought patterns. And that's because our situations alone don't dictate our reactions. It's how we perceive, how we think about our situations. The way we think, impacts the way we feel and the way we react. And that's why people respond so differently. The very similar situations are stimuli. And that's what happens with our mindset, that when we're faced with challenges, because we're in control of our mindset, we can decide how we want to tackle those challenges. There's so much outside of our control in our day-to-day, -day, but the one thing we can always control is our reaction because we can change the way we think about the world around us. That's incredible. And I, when you're saying that, I didn't even think that I could have made up a story. <laughs> I'm like, dang, that would have been interesting. Uh, but it is right? funny because like when you asked that question, my my thought was, well, this uh, uh, after all the fear and everything, my thought was, well, this might make for some great podcast content. <laughs> but this right? is this is so good. A and viral I think, clip. <laughs> exactly. Hey, Martin's embarrassing himself. Um, when we're, I like how you're saying this, when we're focused on the challenges, we can decide how to tackle things. And I want to dig into that more because I think there's so much fruitful information in there. Um, one thing I just want to touch on before we dig into, uh, go even deeper into the mindset piece is what's the difference between changing how we react to things and controlling our um, perception and how we respond and denial? Because that's something that I tend to, you know, e e I think there's some fear around, well, if I'm not like if I'm just saying everything's okay, everything's okay, everything's okay, right? I'm not experiencing anything bad. That could potentially go awry and that could lead to yes. not paying attention to how you're feeling in certain situations. And then like something, you know, maybe burnout hits you in six months or, or you have an emotional reaction that you weren't expecting or something like that. So how do we control how we respond to things, but not slip into a denial pattern? That's an excellent question. So for any of the uh, listeners who are interested, what I'm going to be talking a lot about is rational emotive behavior therapy. It's a type of cognitive behavioral therapy. And really the crux of it is that this type of therapy was founded in the 1960s by Dr. Albert Ellis. And there's tons of research to support it so that we know this model, this theory, these strategies work. And the premise of REBT is that we feel how we think. So by changing the way we think, we can change the way we feel and we react. But going back to what you mentioned, this is a very important nuance. I agree, toxic positivity, when we feel like we have to think positively in negative situations, isn't very helpful. Because when you're faced with something negative, 
we have negative reactions and emotions for a reason. Fight or flight, it tells us how to protect ourselves, how to take care of ourselves, what we need to do. There's importance to negative emotions. So when I work with clients, I never tell them that they have to feel positively about negative situations. But there is a difference between being realistic, being positive, and being either illogical or not realistic. So for example, when I was working with a client um, who was very stressed out, they got a new boss, there was a lot of restructuring happening at the company, and the client was thinking, you know, it would be the end of the world if I got laid off or I would get fired. And this is what they were thinking all day long, and it was impacting their work product because they were so anxious on, and on edge all the time. And as we know, that's a self-fulfilling prophecy. The more anxious and upset you get, you're going to end up hurting your work product, then there is a good chance you might get laid off. So what we talked about a lot is not that that's, you know, that is a realistic possibility. We kind of do have to face that. The company is changing, but at the same time, reminding yourself that telling yourself that over and over again is also not going to be helpful. So the idea wasn't to challenge the fact that this person could get laid off. It could happen. But the idea was to shift your mindset to be more realistic and recognize that constantly thinking that thought over and over again is only going to make you more anxious. I think the self-fulfilling prophecy piece is so huge um, because when it comes to mindset, especially in the job search, you know, there's a lot of imposter syndrome. There's a lot of, there's a lot of fear around, you know, this interview won't go well. These people won't like me. I don't have enough experience. And even when it gets to, you know, some of the, the, externalized things, right? That's all the internal stuff, but the external stuff like uh, ageism, sexism, um, racism, all these different things that come up when you're in a job search. You know, we've all seen the studies where if you just change someone's name on a resume, it gets totally different responses, right? And so there's, people will come to me all the time and they'll say, you know, uh, I'm worried about ageism. And uh, I'm I'm really, you know, scared that I'm not going to be able to find a job because I'm older. You know, what can I do about that? And it's a really tough question to answer because there's two sides to it. One is, you know, the true externality of it, which is there are mm -hmm. there are people that, you know, engage with ageism and won't hire you because of your age or whatever the reasons are. And then there's the internal aspect of that, which is you stopping yourself from pursuing certain opportunities or, you know, going into opportunities with that fear and almost creating it in the interview. I've mm -hmm. seen people do that where they go into an interview and they're like, I feel I'm worried about ageism, but the interviewer hasn't even thought about it. But then you bring right. up, well, I know I'm older, so, you know, blah, blah, blah. And then the, now the interviewer is going, oh, right, you are a little older. And then it might create the ageism that you're afraid of in the first place. So I think that self-fulfilling prophecy piece is so huge. How have you seen people get themselves into trouble with self-fulfilling prophecies? What are some examples of, you know, you gave a great one about anxiety. You know, the more anxious we are, the more we think things will go wrong, the more chances that they will. But what are actual specific things that people tend to hyper-focus on, uh, whether it's ageism or racism or things like that? Have you come across any common patterns in the self-fulfilling prophecies that that can come up in our work and our leadership styles. Mm -hmm. um, big thought pattern that can contribute to self-fulfilling prophecies is um, what Albert Ellis would call self-downing. And the idea is having these broad negative judgments about ourselves that aren't realistic. And it's like what you said with imposter syndrome. If you walk around and you tell yourself, I'm a failure, I'm a loser, I'm not good at this at all, you're gonna to start to believe it because the more we rehearse these thoughts, the more we convince ourselves they're true. And in reality, we do do things that we fail at. At work, you might fail at a project, you might mess up, you might make a mistake, but does that define who you are as a whole person? Of course not, we're more complicated than that. Sometimes we do good things, sometimes we do bad things, but when you add that all together, that doesn't create some number or value that defines our worth as an employee or as a person. But when we tell ourselves that this one mistake defines who we are, therefore we're a failure or we're an imposter, that's what's going to start shaping your view of yourself and your work product and how you function in the workplace. 
And that could lead to behaviors that are really unhelpful. It might be being too perfectionistic. It might be being avoidant. It could lead to um, being passive aggressive because you don't feel like you can advocate for yourself. So it's really learning how to think more, how we're more complex than just this one characteristic we might be defining ourselves by. We're more complex than the one characteristic. I like that because that really brings in that nuance, right? It's like, you know, I might be less, let's say, adept at scheduling, but I'm really good with people or I'm not so great at numbers, but I'm really good at presentations. And and I think that even plays into like strengths and weaknesses questions and in interviews that people get all hyped up and worried about. Um, but one of the things that I want to dig into here is I think, I think a lot of this is fueled by some of the, let's just call it fakeness in, in the working world, uh, where everyone is putting on a, a bit of a, a professional veneer, let's say. And uh, we go in and in the, the problem is like, every, if everyone's doing it and we are the only brain that we can read, the only mind we can read is our own. Everyone else looks like they're perfect. And in our head, you know, we're the messy one. And one of the things that I've always tried to help people kind of come to terms with when imposter syndrome gets really bad is like, stop thinking everyone else is so great. Like, especially if you're in the job search and you're not in a corporate environment right now, you're trying to get into one. Everyone seems so great. But then I'm like, do you remember your last job? Wasn't your boss kind of like incompetent and your coworker kind of stunk? And like, you know, every job kind of stinks in some way, shape or form. Like this company is just a company will probably go under in the next 20 years. Like, <laughs> you know, like almost put things into perspective kind of globally, right? Like every company eventually fails and every person mm -hmm. eventually won't be at that company anymore. And kind of taking that sort of broader view of nobody is perfect. So stop being so hard on yourself. But how are you sort of seeing that in the in the corporate space of of people maybe coming to terms with the fact that being messy is okay or being, you know, having room to grow is okay? How what is that realistic view that we can take to how we should feel at work, how productive we should be, what what expectations actually are so that we're not holding ourselves to a standard that's unrealistic? Right. You know, what are the what are some of the realistic maybe benchmarks? that we can start thinking about to put ourselves at ease and feel a little bit more comfortable in these environments? One place I like to start is with a question and I'll, I'll pose it to you. Let's say that the sink in your house or apartment breaks. What are you gonna do? Uh, I'm gonna probably look under it, see that something is broken and then call my, and then call my landlord. <laughs> <laughs> But you're not going to immediately call your realtor and be like, we need to sell or I need a new lease. I need to get out of here. The sink's broken. I can't live here. You're not just going to totally get rid of the apartment or house. Yeah, no, no. I, I still need so, a place to sleep. <laughs> <laughs> so you'll you'll try to fix it. Yeah, yeah. Either either so just, you know, snake that drain or get someone in here to fix the pipes. So just because one thing's broken, you're not going to completely get rid and trash the whole thing. No, thank God. <laughs> And that's what I would point out to my client first when they're starting to think I'm such a mess, everyone around me is perfect. I'd say, okay, just because this one thing's not going well, are you going to completely trash or get rid of your whole identity or who you are? Of course not. We can work to change that one thing. Maybe in this moment, it feels like everyone else is perfect and nothing's going right for you. And it could, that could be realistic. And we're going to accept where you are in this moment and think about things that you want to change. We're not just going to say, oh, hands up in the air. There's nothing we can do. This is the way it is. And think about, okay, comparing yourself to your coworkers isn't going to be helpful because we can't change anything with them. So let's take this step-by-step step and figure out what, when you say, what is a mess? What does that look like? What is within your control to start changing? And as you can make those small improvements, those are things that are within your control a toxic boss, a coworker you disagree with, those things we can't necessarily change. So let's focus on what, what skills you could build, what you can work on so that your day-to-day -day maybe doesn't feel as challenging, even though there are these outside forces that you might not be able to address right now. This is a great point um, around control and change. Um, 
I just got a question from a listener, which we'll probably dig into more in, in future podcasts as well. But um, they were asking about, you know, when you start a job and you've been there a while and then someone new gets hired and they're making more money than you. They were asking, like, how do I approach that? How do I how do I go get more money from my boss or like because there is this sort of idea that everything should be even. Um, mm -hmm. And I think I think the employee and the employer differ in their opinions on that. But then there's also you know, that sort of bleeds into this, these different ideas of like, oh, my boss is X. And then we, we almost create a caricature of the boss or a caricature of the coworker, um, where we stop looking at how nuanced they are. And we just put them into X category. They're, they're toxic, they're whatever. Um, and I think that that can start to lead to some weird situations. Um, either again, to your point of throwing out the baby with the bathwater, I have a toxic boss, so I have to leave. I've definitely done that before. Um, or uh, I have a not ideal work environment. I have to change it. I have to find a way to make this company better. And I see people get caught in that trap too, where they're like, how do I, how do I improve this company culture? It's like, you are one cog in a big wheel. Like, <laughs> I don't know if you're gonna be able to change a culture, let alone you know, we can't even wake up a half hour earlier half the time. <laughs> like, how are you going to mm -hmm. change a culture? Uh, so what are some of the things when it comes to control and change and where to focus our energy? Um, you know, you said, what is within your control to start changing? Can we get into some examples? Like, what are the things that are in our control? And what are the things that are maybe not in our control? Because um, even internally, even within ourselves, there might be some things that we can't change, right? Um, you know, I have pretty bad anxiety and I can change how I cope with it, react to it and things like that. But, you know, from everything I've read, it's not going anywhere. <laughs> right. It's, it's just going to sit on my shoulder, whispering in my ear. What I need to do is change my relationship to it. So what is within our control and what's maybe outside of it and where should we focus our energy? Mm -hmm. When I work with clients, my goal is to come in and, as I mentioned, work with them to figure out how they can shift their mindset or their behaviors or their reactions, because there is a lot outside our control. But the other thing I always say is that sometimes there are these external factors that are not okay. If there are things going on in the workplace that you're being mistreated or there's injustices occurring, then sometimes you do need to take that big step and say, this is not for me. I need to protect myself and I need to get out of here. So I always like to have that conversation with clients in the beginning, you know, let's look at what are these concerns you have, because some of them do very much warrant external steps and external change, getting other people involved, really practical problem solving to get you out of a bad situation. But then, like you said, some companies just don't have a great culture and it might not be something you want to leave over, but it's something that you want to focus on to maybe help your day to day or your boss isn't the best leader or best manager, but not enough to maybe go leave right away. So in those cases, I always come back to what is your goal? Because if your goal is to make your boss a better manager, I'm sure there are a lot of other people in the company trying to do that and it might not be working. There's only so much you can do. So let's get really specific on your realistic goal and define that goal. Because when we know what we're working towards, it's a lot easier to figure out those smaller steps to get there. So for example, I have um, a client that I've been working with and his boss is a big micromanager and doesn't always rein in the behavior. So sometimes that micromanaging comes out in front of colleagues or even in front of clients and can create very uncomfortable situations. Because this client I'm working with is pretty high up in his career now and he's doing very well, but for the client to fear the boss micromanaging really undermines his ability to perform in that moment. So the goal was to address this with his boss, but in a way that the boss wouldn't necessarily get defensive or look at it as critical, but figuring out how they could work together more effectively. Because the truth is, you will always get feedback, but how can we do that in a way that doesn't make you feel uncomfortable or maybe jeopardize a relationship with a client? So it's getting very clear on that goal and thinking about what would make sense for the two people in that situation to really collaborate and come to terms with a solution that makes sense. And that kind of brings us into this, you know, state of corporate wellness right now. Um, there is a lot happening 
on the corporate side of things in regards to wellness more than I've ever seen in the past uh, in terms of you know, trying to have these conversations more often in terms of having an open door policy where you say, come on in, talk to me, see, you know, how do we improve this environment? And uh, there seems to be a lot more opportunities for these conversations in the workplace, but with more opportunities comes more opportunities to get it wrong or go too far. Uh, what are some of the things, um, let's say someone does try to bring things up to their boss and it doesn't go well, what are ways that you could bounce back from that? Or, um, you know, I guess, are there any examples you've come across where people have tried things, it hasn't worked, but then they've found a way to adjust quickly and still maintain a, a healthy-ish environment in their in their workplace? Yes, this happens a lot and a lot of times when you want to create real change it won't happen overnight and these conversations will happen again and again and again and that's why it's really great to have that goal because if you know what you're working toward you know if you've met the goal or not and if you haven't met it you want to figure out how to keep working toward the goal so for example if you're stuck in a conversation it feels like it's going in circles or maybe it's getting heated there are always two things i recommend one walk away from it but in doing that, decide on when you'll address this again, because it's easy to walk away and then it just go by, goes by the wayside and things will never change. So deciding, okay, why don't we come back and talk about this next week and give it some more thought. You're not sweeping it under the rug, but you're taking that step back and letting everyone cool off and then recollecting your thoughts and deciding how you want to take it on. The other thing I always recommend is when you're walking away from a problem-solving conversation or a conversation that you're trying to meet a goal is always come up with action steps. So again, things might not get solved overnight, but if everyone in the conversation can figure out one step they're going to take towards resolving the situation, at least you're continuing to create forward progress and you'll come back and continue to reevaluate until you've met that goal. Today's episode of the podcast is brought to you by Career Therapy's Unstuck Coaching Program, which was built to give you the personalized support you need to advance in your career without fear and turn work-related anxiety into professional accomplishments. When you enroll in the Unstuck Coaching Program's monthly membership, you get immediate access to all of the coaching resources you need to crush it in your job search. This includes two one-on-one -on -one calls with Coach Marty every month, weekly job search support group sessions with the Unstuck community, access to the Unstuck curriculum, which guides you through every aspect of your job search from strategy through negotiations, and an invite to the Career Therapy Slack channel where you can chat with Coach Marty whenever job search questions come up. Want to see if the Unstuck Coaching Program is right for you? Head over to careertherapy.com and schedule a free consultation with me in order to find out. Yeah, and I think a realistic view, you know, I'll see that all the time. Someone will be like, oh, you know, I did bring it up to my boss, but they kind of murmured it under their breath in a meeting or something like that. Um, it's like, or they did actually have the conversation and it didn't go the way they hoped. And they go, well, you know, I tried once, I guess it's just fated that this will never change, right? I think a realistic view would be to say, this is going to take more than one conversation. This is, mm -hmm. you know, if, and, and then also realize that there is only, there is a limit to how much others are capable of or willing to change based on your opinions, because our opinions might not even be right. We might have a completely unrealistic view of what that person should be, right? And and that's not necessarily helpful for either people involved. Uh, but I like what you said about walking away and coming up with action steps. I think where people get in trouble with that too is that they they set the action steps, they maybe do their action steps, but then they get to the next meeting and no one else has done their action steps. And yeah. so now you're frustrated and you're even more angry. I'm the only one doing anything here and you can get into that rut, right? So how do we hold both ourselves and others accountable in a healthy way? A lot of times I tell people to go in with the assumption that things might not go according to plan. Because as we started off our conversation saying, all we can control is ourselves, we can't control other people. 
So if you go in knowing that other people might not be taking the same steps as you, it adds that disappointment a little bit more, and at least you're prepared to deal with that. A lot of what I talk about with clients too is trying to expect or trying to predict potential pitfalls when it comes to problem solving. So when you come up with a solution or an action step, I wouldn't say take hours doing this because you could end up in a spiral, but take a few minutes and think about what are potential pitfalls and how am I going to solve them? So if I go back into this meeting and no one else has accomplished their action steps, how am I going to deal with that? Because the more prepared you can be going in, the less caught off guard you are and the more confident you feel in addressing those issues. I like that a lot. I tend to use the um, if-then thinking with my clients. So when they go into an interview, I go, all right, so if they ask you a question and you don't know the answer, then you will say X, right? Or if they ask you this question, then you'll tell this story. Or if you get rejected from this job, then your next day is going to look like this. Like just having some stories in your head that are ready to go, some prepared mm -hmm. responses. And I think a lot of what you're saying here is about reducing the ambiguity and almost, you know, there's no way we can prepare for every potential outcome, but we can right. give ourselves a few different, um, like best case, medium case, worst case scenario. So if I get the job, then I'll do this. If I, uh, you know, if it's taking too long, then I'll do this. If it's, or if I get two offers then I'll do this. And you know, I think it's helpful to kind of think about it in that if-then approach, trying to predict those pitfalls so that we can be more prepared. Um, when it comes to when it comes to that going a little off the rails and getting into a bit of a spiral or a rut, what I guess let's let's take a moment to think about the ruts that people might. Let's talk about some pitfalls. What are some common pitfalls that people fall into, and how can they get out of them if they fall into them? This is a conversation I have with so many clients. I actually had this the other day. Um, I was speaking with one of my clients and she was telling me about a coworker and we've been working together for a while. And I had heard this story so many times. I asked my coworker to do something. She didn't get it done. I had to send email after email, rushed to get it done, got it done by the deadline. But my client was freaking out all day because it could have been done hours earlier and impacted her ability to contribute to the project. And what I said to her was, if I were to give you a billion dollars and you were going to place a bet on whether your coworker was going to get it done right away or your coworker was going to wait to the last minute, where would you put the billion? My client goes, of course I'd, I'd put the billion on. She's not going to get it done till right before the deadline. I said, exactly. You know this, but each time this behavior pattern happens, you allow yourself to get surprised and angry over and over again. You're giving that coworker so much power when you could have predicted this behavior. And this is a pitfall a lot of us get ourselves into in that we, we know the people we work with a lot of times, but we think they should be different. We demand that other people should do things differently, even though either A, the reality is we know that's not the way they work, or two, know deep down that no matter what we want people to do, it doesn't mean they have to act that way. Just because we want the world to be a certain way doesn't mean it has to or will be that way but we keep tricking ourselves otherwise. So we place these unrealistic demands on the world, on others that deep down we know aren't true. It's so, uh, it, this, this is the area where I struggle the most because I'm so idealistic sometimes. <laughs> and because I am a coach, I'm always working to help people improve. So I get stuck in these thought patterns where I'm like, you can fix everything. If you only just put in enough effort, you can be better. But then I look at myself and my own life and I go, well, damn, I can't even get myself to do half the things that I want to do. Right. And so mm -hmm. how can I possibly expect other people to do that too? And this kind of comes around that idea of acceptance. Right. And I think people struggle with acceptance because they think it means just putting up with things or, you know, right. going back to our example earlier of, you know, if you are in a truly toxic environment, you should do something about that. You shouldn't just put up with it for life. Um, but there is a, a an acceptable range of acceptance, right? <laughs> we can we can really think about that stuff and put, let's say, these realistic demands. Because I like how you said that it's we're allowing ourselves to be surprised and disappointed around things we know are are, are going to be happening anyway, and. Probably the best example, I mean, 
this happens at work, you know, on, on a daily basis, you know, you have that one coworker that always acts a certain way, but this happens in everything. This happens with friendships. This happens with relationships. This happens with family. It's like, you, you, you never truly know someone like fully 100%, but there's patterns, you know, people's patterns and you yes. can predict patterns. And so it is fun to sort of think about like, oh, I can actually, if I know the pattern, why do I keep letting myself be surprised by it, right? Why do I keep letting myself be uh, disappointed by the patterns that I already know are going to be happening? So I appreciate you telling that uh, example because it. I think that's probably the most common thing that people experience or maybe are, they're listening to it right now fuming about an email that they haven't gotten back from a coworker, right? Or um, a micromanagey thing that they got from their boss today or something like that. Um, and this, you know, I, I want to shift our, our focus here a little bit from, because a lot of what we've been talking about right now is intervention. So you're already in the situation and it's kind of hitting you. And now you have to respond to it, the if then statements, right? But how can we move from intervention to prevention? Because I know that's a big piece of your work. Mm -hmm. So what are some of the things we can do to shift from that reaction mindset to a more um, prevention mindset? Yes. Um, so going off that example we just spoke about, one of the ways to work towards that prevention and start establishing that mindset that will help mitigate or help problems from happening before they arise is this idea of wants versus demands. So I don't want to sound like a total pessimist and that you know, no one will ever change. Nothing will be the way we want it to be. But this idea, if we can catch ourselves and start shifting to this want mindset, and what that means is it's okay to want things. It's okay to want people to be a certain way or want the workplace to be a certain way and acknowledging that just because we want these things, therefore it doesn't have to be this way. And this shift in mindset can help alleviate so much stress because if you're going in, okay, I want my coworker to meet this deadline. And even though I want that, it might not happen that way. So how am I going to problem solve ahead of time? How am I going to delegate this project differently because you're thinking more realistically before the problem comes up. So I want um, my client to be more responsive and to get back to me much quicker on my proposal, but I can't make them do that. So how am I going to make sure I get that response to my proposal and trying to think strategically before you run into the problem. So whether that's, I'm going to make sure I send the proposal on a Tuesday morning, not on a Monday morning, when it's going to get drowned in their inbox. I'm going to do a follow-up call on Wednesday. I'm going to schedule a meeting. So really acknowledging the reality of what might happen and then being really proactive in the practical steps you can take as well. Yeah. And I think a, a big piece there is as you're doing that work, as you're thinking proactively to not then think, oh, because I did that, then everything's going to be perfect, right? So instead of sending the email on Monday, we send it on Tuesday and we go, well, I'm putting in the effort. Now I'm even more <laughs> upset that they didn't respond on Tuesday. I changed my work pattern, but you're still not getting better. You know, we we can just see those wheels start to turn. And I think it's, you know, we got to keep coming back to that ability to have realistic expectations mm -hmm. and to really just sort of, you know, come to terms with the fact that the world is messy and humans are messy and we shouldn't expect. I think managing the expectation is really everything at the end of the day. Right. Um, I was watching this interesting video an interview with a monk and, and he was just talking about how uh, it really is like most of our pain is caught up in our expectations, right? We think things should be a certain way and then they aren't, or, we um, are told things will be a certain way, but then they're not, right? We're, we're When we apply for a job and get a job, they're like, this is what you're going to be doing. It's going to be such an exciting environment. We're such a collaborative team. And then you get in there and it's like, oh, that's maybe half true. <laughs> but, right. but because our expectations are set so high, our dream job, we got our dream job. But then we get in there and it's not quite the dream or or maybe it is for three months, but then it changes or it, you know we get used to it. And that's kind of the human experience, right? And so um, there was a, another interesting thing I saw where it's like, uh, you know, if you tell your kids that you're going to take them out for ice cream and then you get to the ice cream shop and it's closed, they're crushed, right? It completely destroys the day and everyone's going to be really upset. 
But if you just drive past the ice cream place and then go, oh, let, it's open, let's get ice cream, then everyone is surprised by the excitement of it. So it's almost like setting the expectation creates more opportunities for things to not live up to it versus maybe having a little bit more of a, I don't know, I can't think of the word, but like more of an improvisational approach or a more um, curiosity-based approach to your work and to the things that you're trying to accomplish in life, more of a let's see what happens versus this should happen kind of approach. What would you say to that? Yes, and that that relates back to the idea of creating flexibility within structure. We need schedules, we need to put things on our calendars, but we also can create flexibility. Similarly, when we're approaching situations, creating that structure, setting goals, having action steps, but also going in with the flexibility that you know things might go wrong or might not go according to plan. I like talking about with my clients, you know, living in the what is versus the what if. So while there is this degree of preparation we could do and go through some of those what ifs, also being able to live in that moment, the what is, and responding to things as they come up as well. So knowing that maybe your expectations could be slightly off or something might not go according to plan, but if you're in that moment being present, really thinking about what skills do I have that I've built up prior to now to help deal with maybe that expectation not being what I had hoped it would be. Well, and that pulls us back to, you know, the anxiety and the emotional reactions to things, because <clears throat> I think a lot of the what if planning um, or the the trying to control the outcome, the trying to control the, the future, that's sort of, it's a lot of it is rooted in I just don't want to feel a certain way when things go wrong. I don't want mm -hmm. to be surprised. I don't want to be disappointed. I don't want these things to happen. And I think that living in the what is can be scary to people because maybe they don't feel like they have the skills to deal with things as they come up or, or maybe they get flooded with emotions or they have, you know, panic reactions or, or mm -hmm. all these different things. And, and, you know, I, I think this again, goes back to focus on what you can control versus what you can't, because if you're if you're trying to control your life so that nothing bad ever happens, which I've been guilty of, uh, mm -hmm. then nothing might ever happen. <laughs> like you might just have nothing happen right. versus um, getting yourself to be more resilient and to be stronger and to be able to cope with more things and to be able to react better to more things. And this brings us back to what you were saying of it's not the emotion. It's how we respond to that emotion, especially when we're trying to create that flexibility and that structure. So, you know, as we get to the end of the conversation here, what are maybe a couple of, um, what are maybe a couple of good reactions, good ways to respond to overwhelming emotions in the workplace? So let's say you are sitting there and your boss is micromanaging you again, and you're just getting so frustrated and so angry or your coworker didn't do the thing and now your project is late and you're worried it's going to impact your ability to get a promotion and you're you know you're just getting like really just you know anxious about the future of your 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 position at that company um if someone's getting flooded they're getting over overwhelmed what are some positive ways that they can shake themselves out of it or mm -hmm. respond to it and that that's going to be more healthy than you know sending that mean email or something like that. This is where the prevention piece is so important too, because we wanna practice a lot of these skills that will help us manage those emotions in that situation when we're calm. If we wait till we're already angry or upset or anxious, it's gonna be much harder to just start using skills. So strategies like deep breathing, progressive muscle relaxation, mindfulness, all these skills can help change our emotional reaction in the moment. But the key is to practice those well before we're in those moments. So they become a habit. It's this muscle you have to work. And the more these behaviors become habitual, the easier it is to pull them up in those moments of tension. So practicing those relaxation strategies can be really helpful in calmer situations. So then you could use them when you're sitting in front of your boss who might be yelling at you. The other is really exploring your mindset. So rather than thinking about what should be happening in that moment, asking yourself, okay, what are demands I might be making? How might I be surprising myself right now over something I could have predicted? And how can I think realistically about this situation? 
Because the second you make that switch, it will change that emotional reaction. You're not going to feel positively. If your you know, boss sent you an angry email, you're still going to feel negatively. But if you can change that emotional reaction so you're not as tense and you can control your reaction, you're less likely to act impulsively. Um, the other is taking that step back, whether it's you need to ask to come back to a conversation or just focus on specific steps you can take and remove yourself and then think practically, okay, if I'm gonna go back into this situation, what are things I can do to make sure we don't have a repeat of what's just been happening? Yeah, it reminds me of a time I was working with someone and uh, a company was kind of you know, dragging the job search process on and on and on. They had like six interviews or something like that. And then uh, I think the company was like, hey, we need to reschedule again. Uh, and the person just wrote back in the email, okay, just the two <laughs> letters in their email. And I was like, oh no, <laughs> don't do that. Uh, I was like, next time you want to send a passive aggressive email, send it to me first and I'll help you write right, something let, nicer. Let edit it. <laughs> and it's like, yeah, it, it really is. It's putting that space. It's thinking realistically. It's building that muscle. And I think... Um, to your point, like building that muscle is really trying to do it in smaller situations. So how do you practice this stuff when a coworker is slightly annoying so that you're ready for it when your boss is really annoying? And I, I think it's interesting as well when we start to think about these things. Uh, I've, I've heard this from so many people where they go, um, how come everyone else gets to be shitty, but I always have to be under control. And like my boss is sending these just one word emails, but I can't respond that way. I have to like spend all this time thinking of the proper way to respond. And even like, do I put sincerely or best or whatever, right. <laughs> and, right? just getting really into the weeds. Um, how do we, I, maybe as we get to the end of the convo here, how do we deal with those, um, it's almost the opposite of comparison. It's like comparison is like, oh man, everyone's better than me. And this is almost like jealousy that other people get to be shitty, but I have to keep it all together. Um, how do how do we, we'll end on this idea of how do we just manage our, I don't even know how to ask the question specifically, but it's like, how do we, how do we allow others to be shitty? I guess, how do we allow people to not be their best self and be okay with it? My first response is you don't have to be okay with it. You could be pissed off. You could be annoyed. The question is what you want to do with that emotion. Um, you you could be shitty as well. You could also be horrible to other people. But where is that going to get you? How is that going to help you reach your goals? And something I like to do with clients is you know, basic pros, cons list, but I take it a step further. It's pros and cons, but thinking about costs and benefits. What are the costs in the short term? Where are the costs in the long term? Where are the benefits in the short term? Benefits in the long term. And great, you want to be shitty? Let's put down on this list what's that, what that will look like for you. And usually when you map it out, you realize that might feel really good in the moment to be passive aggressive or to act that way. But that's not going to help you achieve that long-term benefit of being promoted or you know, being respected by your team. And the costs might be greater. So when we really are having that hard time changing a behavior or accepting others, sometimes it helps to really think about, you know, just as we do with children, what are the consequences of our behaviors? As adults, we're not held to that often where we're held accountable for our behaviors, especially in the workplace. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't consider those consequences because they can be pretty great for us. I love that. And I think that's a great spot for us to wrap today. Uh, where can folks find more about your work, Brooke, and uh, follow along with what you're doing? Yeah. So if you're interested in learning more about my work, you could visit my website, www.bewtraining.com. You can also follow me on LinkedIn, Brooke Walkler. And I have a biweekly newsletter where I talk about a lot of these concepts and give very practical tips for the workplace. It's beyond the buzzword. And you could either sign up on my website or follow on LinkedIn to get the newsletter to your inbox. I love it. Brooke, thank you so much for being with us today and sharing these amazing insights. I hope you have a wonderful week and I really appreciate everything that you shared here today. I hope people take it and apply it to their stressful work environments that they're in right now. Thank you so much. It was great speaking with you.
Thanks for joining us for today's episode. If you found this conversation to be helpful, please like and subscribe wherever you are listening. We also appreciate it if you take the time to leave us a review on iTunes. It really does help us spread the word and get these ideas out to more job seekers looking to build their careers and improve their lives just like you. If you'd like to learn more about career therapy and see our different coaching options, you can head over to careertherapy.com to learn more. Thank you again for stopping by. We wish you all the best in the future of your career. Have a good one.